Welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast with Dr. Ben Hunt. Please stay tuned for some important disclosures presented at the end of this episode. Welcome back to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Head of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient. And I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Ben Hunt, our Chief Investment Strategist. Hey, hey Michael. How you doing? Doing great. Uh, and our special guest today is Mr. Peter Cicchini. He is Chief Market Strategist and Head of Cross Asset Strategy at Cantor Fitzgerald, and also a very prolific writer like you, Ben. Peter's great. We've known each other for, for, for a while now, and uh, I always love to get a chance to, to, to get Peter in and compare some notes. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm a big, big fan of yours, for yeah. sure. Thanks. Is Thanks. it your first podcast, Peter? It is my first podcast. Oh, get out. That can't be right. It is right. I'm well, old school, Ben. That's funny. <laughs> I, I, I did see... You'll appreciate this, Michael. There, there was some tweet that I thought was pretty good. He said, you know, what what do you call a, a, a group of, of white men? You know, a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that's why I'm surprised, Peter. You know, because Peter is, is very uh, media uh, aware. He's a frequent guest on, on Bloomberg in particular. I Bloomberg think, and sure. CNBC and yeah. all the yeah. likely... Yeah. Well, so, this so, is just like that, so yeah, yeah. Right. we're not live, which yeah. is which is yeah. uh, an added benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so lots of people have seen Peter's face, and now you, now you just get the, the disembodied voice. So, uh. yeah. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that a number of the views I'll be expressing here today with 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 Ben um, are based on published works. Uh, for example, the failure to inflate, and other views expressed today are my own personal views and not the views of Cantor Fitzgerald. Peter, I wanted to have you in because it, what really caught my eye was uh, you, you are a prolific writer, and I, I want to give the readers here a chance to uh, you know find out where to get your. Uh, they're almost daily, right? That you do you put out with Canter the the daily notes. You, you put yeah, out we we have a daily quick read which does go out every morning, and we try to summarize our market views and, and be very topical. And that tends to be a summary of what happened overnight. And we how we try to differentiate that is with a little bit more of the why than yeah. you might get from the typical you know note. Um, we also have a piece called Theta Thursday, which is weekly. That tends to be a bit more vol centric, if you will, and a bit more quanty. Uh, and then we have our big picture pieces, which is the where the failure to inflate uh, came in. Um, and those pieces do tend to be oriented towards institutional investors, uh, and they can be accessed through myself uh, or, or through Canner. Yeah. Now, the, the Theta Thursday I love, right? And, and I think it'll appeal to a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast, as well as the that. big picture note, uh, which is really good. And, and you referenced the, the specific note that got me to... Pick up the not the phone, but the, right. the to drop you an email saying yeah. we, we've got to record something, and it was the title was failure to inflate. That's right. And you know it's it it hit on a lot of the topics that I've been trying to write about recently, whether it's you know, these big mysteries. Let's call it the big mysteries of of modern macroeconomics, right? So why haven't we seen inflation mm-hmm. despite the trillions trillions of dollars in uh, balance sheet uh, acquisitions by various central banks. Two point two trillion year to date this year. Year to just, just this about. year, just just this year, year. Just, just this year, right? And similarly, why aren't we seeing productivity growth, particularly in this country? Yeah, right. I, I mean, because that's any any kind of policy you want to to, to implement at its heart. That's what you're trying to achieve. 
You're Absolutely. trying to achieve that sort of productivity, productivity and innovate and productivity through innovation. That's right. That's right. And and it's just it's just so moribund. I mean, why is that, right? And and then finally, and this is a little bit inside baseball, but not too much because I think it's been pretty well popularized. But what is I'll call it the Phillips curve, mm-hmm. right? Meaning, what is the relationship, if any, right, between employment, particularly unemployment, yeah. and wages, inflation, in particular, right? So I'm going to let you summarize that note you wrote, failure yeah. to inflate, and okay. then let's we'll, we'll we'll riff from there. Okay, terrific. You know, I, I think it's important to say um, it's a complicated topic. And so we listed, I think, five factors in the note that could possibly uh, contribute to a lack of inflation. And, and frankly, it's really the interaction. It's a complex interaction of those factors that has led to uh, the failure to inflate, if you will. Um, I think, though, the the big focus of the note and the real novel part of this is that monetary policy, um, as it's being applied today, is somewhat anachronistic and designed for a bit of a different time in which globalization uh, was less a factor. Yep. And it was designed for application by a single central bank in a more or less closed domestic economy um, from which capital outflows and inflows were somewhat protected by various barriers. I mean, certainly today, just the ability to transfer funds electronically has knocked down a lot of those barriers. Crazy, right? Crazy difference from 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 where we were, you know, Forget 20 years ago, yeah. but even like 10 years ago, yeah. it's very different. There, yeah. There's a massive difference. And so and so applying the, the big concept, I think, is, is that the application of a somewhat anachronistic policy and its application in an extreme fashion, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. QE, because monetary policy heretofore, with maybe one exception historically, uh, I'm sure, which you could probably teach a class about, um, has, has not included QE. And so what the big point of the note is in this new global uh, world of ours, um, QE has perverted investor expectations about what the permanent cost of capital is. So if Mm -hmm. you think about what QE and monetary policy in and of itself really is a form of price fixing, right? For sure. It's it's a price fixing fixing of of, of the cost of capital, right? And and again, heretofore, it was was generally using temporary OMOs, open market operations, uh, on the short end of curves. Now, uh, it's morphed into longer term in terms of it's the time frame over which it's been implemented. But the kind of assets that are involved now aren't just short rates, it's long rates, globally and risk assets themselves. The ECB is buying investment grade bonds in yep. Europe, for example. Yep. Um, Japan is obviously buying equities. And right. And, and talk about the kind of the hubris of controlling the price of money, right? Japan's the, the, the quintessential example, right? Yes, uh, yeah. a- absolutely. And so I think the, the sort of corollary to that, or perhaps the conclusion one can draw from history is price fixing doesn't last for very long. You can do it in the very near term. And you can use it for a purpose. But if you try to permanently control the cost of something, uh, market forces eventually either prove you wrong because something breaks or there are ancillary and unintended consequences where sort of that pressure from Mm -hmm. the price fixing Mm -hmm. blows off. 
Um, and I think that's what we have in this case. And so, and, and here's the thought process. If, let's talk about a, a, a hard capital allocator. And I think it also applies to investors in financial assets. But if you think about it, you know, a, an investor in plant and equipment, for example. Right, right. A real economic player. Right. And, yeah. and especially, by the way, an investor in plant and equipment in a geographical location where there's a comparative labor advantage, right? Mm -hmm. So the pushback mm -hmm. I, I often get on this is, well, we're, we're not getting a lot of capital investment in the United States. And, and we're not getting as much as we ought to in there. That's a bigger conversation. But when you think about uh, a country like Mexico or another like China or India, where you have low cost labor, especially relative to the U.S., that's better trained certainly than it was even five or 10 years ago, investing in labor training and plant and equipment to take advantage of that labor when global rates are low is a lot easier. And well, more, and that's where you're getting your productivity growth. Exactly, you're getting it in all those economies, but not in the United States. And moreover, if you're a capital allocator and you believe that global central banks are gonna keep rates low for a very long period of time, the capital allocation decision is a really a three to five to seven year old kind of decision. QE enables you to rely on that because it's adjusting long rates. And it's been happening for so long that I think, I believe, the capital allocators are thinking in terms of a much lower sort of hurdle rate. And I think this is, in fact, bleeding into the Fed's own discussion about rates in terms right. of the, new, the, the R star and the idea that well, explain, rates are explain lower. Explain for our listeners what, what, what R star is. It's the idea, it's the, it's the, it is the, uh, the interest rate at which um, uh, output is, I guess, on the horizon, right? So where you have no slack in the economy. Um, and I believe most, most recently, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Williams who came out most recently, and a lot of people have come out with it, but has said, you know, about 2.5% on Fed funds is, is what the new R star is. Yeah, no, it's incredibly low, right? right? And, yeah. and so it seems to me like that very conversation is sort of a protest uh, by central bankers in the Fed in particular that they're not having an impact on what that natural rate is, where they, and, you know, Leo Brainerd has come out and very strongly that, that and explicitly that the Fed has not affected what is going on with interest rates and inflation. And uh, I, I think you can't really avoid the fact that that their action on the market is affecting the market itself and that the price fixing is starting to actually have the opposite and negative unintended consequence of causing sort of disinflation. And so I, I could get into that very quickly. And 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 that that would be because in markets like Mexico, where there might be a comparative advantage in labor and capital investment is cheap, um, new capacity and supply comes on that at a more normal hurdle rate would never come on. So, you know, when I yeah. went to school, yeah. you know, 5% was sort of the, right. the risk-free rate that we studied right. in our textbooks, right? Well, if 2.5% is the new risk-free rate, well, that's a very different world. So the point is, is that if monetary policy has pulled forward demand through lower rates, it has now also pulled forward supply, but not only sort of in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a near term, but also in the longer term. And as new capacity has come on, especially in geographies that wouldn't ordinarily have access to low cost capital, that supply, that, that capacity creates supply that keeps prices low, especially if you look at commodities, for example. It's one of the reasons why the secular bull market commodities, in my humble opinion, has ended. Um, we can even see it in, in the U.S., in the energy sector, mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. with the fact that, of course, you've had innovation and fracking. 
Uh, but cost of capital, which enables you to employ that innovative technology being so low, makes it very easy for uh, EMP companies to bring supply online. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and I, I, where I kind of take from this right, is, is a larger notion that, the, that what the, the, the Fed has done in changing our beliefs right, in changing our expectations, right. right, this is what changes behavior. And it's this, and now I'm going to call it a feedback loop, you know, you know, George Soros used to call this reflexivity, yeah, right, yeah, where, where the change in prices begets change in prices. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the change in prices changes our beliefs, our expectations, our behaviors about what, where, where prices are going. And, you know, there are aspects of this and trend-following strategies of the right. I, I, I'd argue that almost all investment strategies, well, I would say, let's be more clear, all investment strategies, my belief, have a strong level of behavioral um, uh, science, right, activity built inside them. But even if you're a value investor, right, what you're, what you're depending on to make that value investment work is the behavior of other investors who discover, yeah. right, that you were right. Yes, right. That you were right. And, and so then you are then rewarded because they go and buy the thing that you so smartly recognize the deep value in all that, that, that time ago, right? That's, that's true for growth stock, you know, the, the growth approach to investments. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe less true when you're thinking about a pure you know, yield or income type of investment. But, but, even there, I think there are really strong elements of this, this um, I'll call it human behavioralism there. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I, I love the way you invoked, uh, you know, the alchemy of finance. Which yeah. is, I, I believe yeah. the first time Soros brought the re- reflexivity concept in. And, and I agree with you that central banks are essentially trying to deny this aspect of re- reflexivity and behavioralism, if you will, that That's their it. actions That's are it. affecting expectations. And, and I like we can, the way we said can talk about this on very grand levels, right? And, and this is, I think, the mistake that um, uh, an, an overly academic approach to policy instills in the first place, that we, we, we talk about the world as if supply and demand were, you know, actual... Uh, objects or things, right? Mm-hmm. When, when the actual objects or things are human beings, yeah. right, with their behaviors, right? And, and in particular, I think it's this risk-taking behavior which gets assumed away or, or ignored or, or that there's an there's a instantiation of things like supply and demand, these aggregate qualities. And what you lose, I think, in that translation is an appreciation for those underlying human economic activities. And the, the, the foremost of those, I think, is risk-taking. Yes. And, and, and I'll, I'll go a little bit further, which is to say that I think we've got a big divide. And, and I thought your, your comments about having access to capital, you know, what's the cost of capital, mm-hmm. what's your access to capital? And it's without a doubt, it's true that, you know, large corporations, S&P 500 corporations, right, have essentially unlimited access to capital at this enormously low cost. And they don't have the same sort of geographic barriers that they had in the past, right? Small to medium businesses in this country, right? They neither have such great access to capital, right? Nor do they have, I'll I'll call it the lack of any geographic uh, 
barriers or, or, or the like. Yeah. So when we think about, but they are still impacted by the change in expectations that what the Fed has done has done, right? So they're not getting the goodies, right, that these changes in policy allow. Yep. What they're saddled with, though, are the depressed expectations of what's going to be in the future for my business. And I think when that's married with a perception that government is not on your side, and here I'm talking about regulatory mm -hmm. uh, issues in particular, and, and I'm not even talking maybe about the truth with a capital T about regulatory barriers or burdens, but it's certainly the perception that those are increasing and, and, and make a difference, right? Yeah. So this, for small and medium companies, you're, you really are well and truly stuck Right, where, where you don't have that access to capital at low cost, you don't have the freedom to make these sort of decisions that you have with larger corporations. I think, you know, what you know, earnings margins are at an all-time high or something yeah. like that for, yes. for S and P five hundred. Mm -hmm. Right, you don't have that sort of. of and by the way, yeah, to yeah. interrupt you for one second, yeah, there, please. if you look at EBITDA margins, they're actually below average. But net income margins are above average. Why? Because the cost of capital is so That's low it. that interest is really what has boosted earnings. And to your point about small companies and medium-sized companies for that matter, where does innovation occur? Small companies. Oh, well, right? Absolutely. Right? And so so they're getting they're not getting that same access and benefit of low of low cost capital as larger companies or even foreign companies. And that also brings up another point, which I think uh, you and I have discussed in the past very briefly yeah. around when we talk about inflation, right? What, what, what I was talking about goods and services inflation earlier and how excess capacity suppresses prices for goods and services. But what we're also really talking about is why haven't we gotten a wage, a, a price and wage spiral? Why are wages so low? Why are real wages growing at a percent, percent and a half? And I think a big part of that is because emerging market economies in particular act as a sponge for inflation, not mm -hmm. just in goods and services, but also for wages. So if a large company can move production overseas, what does that do to the bargaining power that a union has? Oh, it just obliterates it. Right. So yeah. the, the pricing power that the American worker, even the relatively skilled worker has, is low. And moreover, if you look at where job creation has actually occurred since the end of the, the, the Great Recession, if you will, it's happened in sort of less skilled, more commoditized kinds of jobs in retail, for example. For sure. And what kind of pricing power does a retail worker really have? So you do have labor shortages in higher skilled areas, but those higher skilled areas aren't where the job creation has really occurred. So, uh, you know, there are well, a number like, of know, complicating on, on factors. Specifically, right. So if you yeah. look in the U.S., you look at uh, the certainly our world, you know, financial services, you know, that there are no new jobs. in financial yeah. services, Right. Right. Over the last year, you know, we're seeing significant job declines. Yes. Right. And considerable wage deflation. And, just and to ask us. Yeah. Just. Uh, yeah. Just just as an aside. Right. But what what strikes me as interesting is that same factor. It's not as pronounced, but that same uh, dynamic also exists in the technology sector. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, in that, in that kind of wild to think that over the last decade we've had no new, we've had no net job growth in information technology here in this country. I did not know that. But yeah, actually, it yeah. is, it's unsurprising now that you've said that. 
that's that's a that's a sort of supports it supports the uh, idea. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. and it's, so so you're. I think what you said right at the outset is exactly what's going on. That what we've been we meaning the the world the world central banks have been engaged in since 2009. And and, and I want to be really clear. I think yeah. the Fed saved the world. Me too. With QE one in March of 2009. Right? Certainly, it was, so, ne- it was necessary and the right thing to do. It, well, it's what. It's what you have a central bank to do. Yes. Right? To to provide that emergency liquidity. Agree. Right? Notwithstanding the argument they may have actually created the crisis to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, saved us from the crisis. Right. Potentially, did, they created it. It's them. arguable, of course, and probably a, another yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. discussion. Highly, but Highly arguable. Yeah. I, I would, uh, I would yeah. be delighted to make uh, yeah, that argument. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right? But regardless, right, so the, the, the lifeguard, you know, after, you know, hitting us on the head and talk, tossing it out of the ocean, at least... Tossed out a mm-hmm. you know yes a life preserver a life preserver right but you know as as we as always happens you know emergency government action becomes permanent government that's policy right. yeah. and that's just that's a great point I'm not saying that's good or bad social programs are a great example this has basically right. become a social program this is an insurance policy yeah this this is an insurance policy right and and like any sort of social insurance policy it 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 it's um, once you in, you install it it's so difficult because it to, to take it back because it establishes such a stable political equilibrium. Yeah. And that's what we've got here. It's a stable political equilibrium. But to your point, right, it's price fixing. Yes. It's price fixing on the cost of capital. And what we've seen, I think we, we, we really have really created two worlds in American business, right? You've got the haves, Yes. Meaning the companies that have access to that low cost of capital and lack of geographical barriers and the like, either for capital movements, labor movements, and the like, right? They at least get the goodies from that, mm-hmm. right? And it, hence we have the, the 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 profit margins where they are and the like. But you have a much larger, at least by number and by employees and by everything else, set of companies, the small and medium sized companies in this country that don't have access to the capital, that instead just feel stuck. Yes. And 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 so long as they they believe they are stuck, and this gets to the, you know, to the heart of what I write about in Epsilon Theory, the power of narrative and mm-hmm. stories to change yes. behaviors, right? So long as they feel stuck, even if they've got a need for hiring, which they clearly do. You look at all these surveys for the, you know, small business association like the the job openings are at almost all-time highs, mm-hmm. right, where they need to hire more people. But they're not going to do it unless they believe and expect and see into the future and think we can make something with that investment. That's right. That's right. And it's and it's also interesting, I think, to note that the education system in the U.S. has been changing over time as well. And so, uh, and again, this this is going into the topic potentially of another of another podcast. But when you think about the way uh, we used to educate American workers, it was much more technically based. People mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. graduated from technical schools. They came out of the army or the the armed services with with real skills. They could they could come out of the Navy and like my like like my my grandfather did. And he started a manufacturing company with the skills he learned yep. on a Navy ship. That's what he did. Um that's not really happening anymore. The 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 sort of relevance of the skills that that young adults get in the United States now, coming out of college, 
they're, they're less able to plug right into the needs of, for example, a small business that's looking to fill a position. No, no, there's no doubt you're right, because what we are training in our um, you know, colleges and universities, we're training people to be symbol manipulators, like you and I are. Right? Yeah. That, that's, that's, yes, that's, that's absolutely that's right. That's my job and that's your job, yeah. right? We manipulate symbols, yeah. whether that's words, whether that's you know, stock tickers, right? We're, we're, that's, and our society, politically and economically, rewards symbol manipulators. Yeah, right. absolutely. And 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 where that then goes is that because you know non-symbolic manipulators are not as well rewarded, mm-hmm. right? And, and frankly, you know, speak a different language than you or I do. Speak a different political language. Speak a different cultural language. And that that divide is really a divide of language and skills. Again, is something that's incredibly pronounced today. I agree. And that takes us back, I think, almost full circle there, because when we talk about monetary policy and how capital, the the cost of capital has been price fixed for as long as it has, and in my humble opinion, how that absolutely needs to stop. And I think there is a tacit recognition globally among central banks that that they, they they sort of get it. They, I agree. They've, they've come out just over the past six months and they've said things like, our models are not explaining things, whether it's the Phillips curve, which many many people don't adhere to. Some do, some don't. A modified version with a Nehru and a, and a vertical Phillips curve at full employment, however you interpret it. It's not explaining why we're not getting wage inflation. Um the supply of money is not explain, explaining why we're not getting higher velocity of money and why we're not getting inflation in goods and wages. So these things are not working. And so I think they've come to a realization that there's got to be another explanation. And, and I think if you look at the body language of central banks generally, it feels like it's very slowly and incrementally starting to morph. And here's the one thing I think that I really give central bankers a lot of credit for. They do understand one particular aspect of human behavior, which is that when change happens slowly, people don't notice it. Right. We all notice something that happens fast. A shock. Yeah. A shock. When something happens slowly enough, you over a long enough period of time, it could be yeah. very different. But but I gotta tell you, Peter, I think this is this is frankly a bit of a problem. And and, yeah. and the, the reason I say that is that the market, market participants they don't believe yeah. the Fed today. Yes. When the Fed says we're we're sailing this barge upriver, we're tightening, and the market does not believe it, right? And and this, but but clearly, let me, let, let me tell right. you this: this is always the case at the early stage of a tightening cycle. It the is. market does not believe it, and it's a one, because that's a good point. because Absolutely. they're doing it slowly and because they've trained us to respond to their mm-hmm. words and their narratives, right? The market's not buying it yet. And and that, I think that for me is the, the biggest dislocation, let's say, or the, mm-hmm. frankly, the biggest opportunity, the biggest, you can think of opportunity as both, uh, you know. Good and good bad. Thing, good and bad, good right? And right? Bad, yeah. but, but this is the biggest issue I see when I'm talking with people about their portfolios today. Yes. Right, because we're at a stage where I I don't know the truth of inflation or the Phillips curve or anything like that, but I do know the narrative around it. Mm-hmm. And to your point, the narrative of the central banks clearly shifted, you know, four to six months ago, clearly shifted, 
And added to that now, I see a shift in the narrative on the street. Yes, slowly because, but surely. Slowly but surely. And the, 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 the street wants this because they want this rotation trade, mm-hmm. right? This is what the street always wants. They, yeah. For the street, it's always what's next. And so, so long as they can create a story of rotation out of growth and into value and into the financials, that's what the street gets out of it. I've also seen a big shift coming out of Washington. Yes. Yeah, particularly out of this White House, where for, I think I mentioned this in a, a podcast before, you know, the, the attention that, you remember that, that awful press conference, right, of the, you know, Trump had after the Charlottesville. the Charlottesville in Virginia, right? That press conference was set up to talk about infrastructure yes. spending, and it was set up to talk about how we've got to get wage inflation and wage growth going again. So you've got these three incredibly powerful institutions, Wall Street, the White House, Mm -hmm. and now the Fed. And I got to tell you, I see them changing their story and saying, we we want rising rates. Yes. Right. We we, we, we want this. And 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 it's happening. It's happening. Every event that occurs in markets is now interpreted through those lenses, yes. right? And and that's something I think that all investors really need to be aware of. Well, you made a great point earlier that, you know, in most cycles, this is sort of how it feels, yep. right? Yep. And I agree, even if you look at the shape of the yield curve, right? So if yep. you remember, the narrative around the election or just before and after was that we'd get a much steeper yield curve. Yep. We did steepen to about 135 basis points two-year to 10-year, okay? Uh, I believe in late November. Peter, I'm going to interrupt you. Tell listeners what the yield curve is. I mean, yeah. So the the yield curve is the the term structure, if you will, of interest rates. And so it is the premium that investors demand um, over a a, a longer period of time to compensate them for changes in interest rates over time. That's the the, the duration or interest rate So the interest, the, the, the rate of interest to borrow money for 10 years is higher than the rate of interest to borrow yes. money for two years. In normal right? in normal yeah. times, that is true. And that's yeah. exactly where I'm going with this. So, so normally you have an upward sloping yield yeah. curve where longer rates are higher than shorter rates. And that's for right. uh, one of our big themes has been that sovereign rates in developed markets globally have been way too low. Even mm-hmm. though inflation is not blockbuster, they're still too low for the, the, the low level inflation that we have. I mean, German two-year rates are still deeply negative. Yeah. U.S. rates have finally started to creep up. The two-year, I believe, almost hit one and a half. Yep, uh, an eight-year high. Yeah, an eight-year high. Now, the yield curve, which which many expected at the end of last year to be at about 150 basis points right. when you subtract the 10-year yield That's from right. two-year. So, so that means that the 10-year interest rate is a one and a half percent higher than the two-year interest rate. That's right, yeah. if it were 150 basis points, yeah. but that was the expectation. And it is now at 80 to 85 yep. and, and got as low as 75. Now, we made a non-consensus call on that, not I don't think because we're you know smarter than everybody else, but we, we, we recognized one thing that was very important, which was that the ECB is controlling the long end of sovereign yield curves globally mm-hmm. through its quantitative easing program. So the Fed is pushing the short end of the U.S. curve 
higher. Yeah. But the ECB is it's keeping the long end down low. Yeah. yeah. It's anchoring it because if you think about it, risk-free assets are somewhat fungible. So would you rather buy treasuries or bonds? Yeah, but here's the thing with that, Peter. Yeah. The interpretation of a shallower or flatter yield curve mm-hmm. has historically been, oh, that's that's problematic. Exactly for, for where economy, I was going. Yeah. Right? And and what you're saying, and I, I agree with it entirely, is that the flatter yield curve we have today is not an indication not that yet. people are saying, oh my goodness, there's real problems on the horizon for the US economy a few that's years right. down the road, right? But it's being, I'll call it artificially depressed because it of is. what the, the ECB is doing. It is. Now, back to that reflexivity, there's yeah. an argument that they need to act on the long end of the curve because you don't have enough growth and that's what they're afraid of. So, But if you look analogously back to, so 2006, the yield curve stayed flat. 05 into 06, the curve was flattening and I think was about where it is today. Yeah. And then typically, although not always, uh, the yield curve will invert mm-hmm. in times of recession. And then the Fed will be forced to lower rates, which will then on the short end, which will then tend to to it flatten again. it at first and then steepen, steepen it, it back up. And hopefully you get growth and in inflation again, which acts on the long end of the curve, which steepens the curve up. Now, whether or not that happens as normal, that's a big question because the curve has been so manipulated. That's right. The prices have been fixed. Right. And and remain they're they're being fixed today. Fixed. This is your point, right? Yeah. And and I guess this is where I go with all of this, which is that right, it, it, you can have rates, interest rates going up for good reasons or bad reasons. That's right. Right. And it all or so much of it hinges on how it's being presented to us. And that's why I'm so focused on again what I see is the 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 strong effort to create a narrative. You know, call it reflation. Don't use inflation because that's a bad right, word. We'll call right, it reflation. Right. Right. There, there are all these kind of ways in which you try to make the argument that, and it's, again, it's a circular reflexive argument. Things are growing and we're doing well. Hence, rates are going up. Rates are going up because things are doing well and, yeah. and we're growing. Right. It's that. It's that circular argument. But again, I see that being pushed by. All of these, I'll call them political actors, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's it, I, I see it taking hold, and and I think we've got to be prepared for that in our portfolios. And it's also interesting, I think, that again, central banks themselves are crafting the narrative, not necessarily that exists as a reality. It's the narrative they want to exist. So right. I, right, you know, it, right. It, it, oh, for so, sure. So it's this idea that somehow. In one form or another, the lack of inflation is temporary for a year or more. So is lack of inflation for a year or more really a temporary condition right, 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 or not? Right, right, That's really right, the question. Right. And and the problem with that is if traditional tools don't work to stimulate inflation, then what do you do? And just quickly going back to that piece that we wrote, failure to inflate. Yeah. There is, and of course, there are many different conclusions you can draw from everything that we've we've discussed. But one of the more unfortunate conclusions might be that if central banks stop QE, which I believe that they they have acknowledged they must do mm-hmm. in a very incremental way, 
based on this idea that if it happens well, slowly enough, people will notice. Well, the notice. U.S. is starting it in October. We're, that's right. right. Yeah. And in a, in a super incremental way, right? Yeah. You know, but it gets pretty, it, gets, ten, it, it does, gets it, it ramps up in a year. Yeah. It yeah, does to sure 60 does. billion. So um, we're at 100 billion, 100, 100 billion, billion a month. A month. Yeah. Right. So, you know, money. 10 billion a month, not so much. 100 billion a month. Yeah. That, that, that takes a, that takes a nick. Um, but, you know, if, if you think, if you think about what the possible alternative to that is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's that market forces need to start to act on markets again. So if you want free markets, you can't keep them in chains forever. But free markets, by definition, don't always do what you want them to do. Right. In fact, That's they right. just do what they're supposed to do, which is that they're supposed to price risk appropriately. And that means you have winners and losers. And that's the difference between capitalism and socialism. And I don't want to get philosophical here, but at the end of the day, there's something to be said uh, for the idea of creative destruction, which says that, for example, if a manufacturing plant can only be uh, uh, profitable or return more than its cost of capital when the cost of capital is at 1%. Right. Well, then that plant probably shouldn't be open. Right. And unfortunately, that means loss of jobs and loss of income. And unfortunately, there's a human cost to that, which all of us, obviously, we can identify. We all have families and we all want to see people do well and live comfortably. And we want to see quality of of life improve for, for all of humanity. But the fact of the matter is that long-term trajectory of, of, of a better quality of living and life can't necessarily be be taken. You know, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. Yeah, no, That's let, the let, process. Look, and if you let the zombie plants survive, and, and we're using the, the example yeah. of a factory, I think a better example, you know, or a more um, common example is it's not a zombie plant or factory, right? It's mm-hmm. a It's a, you know, it's the shop down the road, you know, that just kind of eeks by, right? Right. Or it's, uh, you know, oh, I'm a corporation, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll have a, I can get a steady program of earnings growth by buying back stock. Why do I want to take a chance, a risk of, mm-hmm. you know, employing a new technology or, you know, trying to jump across the moat that some other, you know, company has set up to really right. try to compete, right? It's... The, the, the notion of being a, a zombie is, 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 I think, more applicable kind of in the zombiness that, that, the, that hits all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that we don't compete as hard. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I grow a garden every summer in, at, at my country house. And I love to garden. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I don't like weeds. And you made me think of this as you said that. Yeah. But it's sort of the idea is that the weeds can crowd out the plants you want to grow. This is it. You have to let the, you have to either kill them or let the weeds die so that the desired plants, that is that, you know, that product, so that productivity and innovation that you want can actually occur. And there's nothing wrong with with the weeds dying off, right? Look, I, I think all of us who I'll characterize as small L liberals, Right. You know, believe in, in. Imagine this freedom and justice for all. Right. We, we all believe what you're saying. But but and this is a but. The strength of a political equilibrium by turning markets into political utilities is so strong. Yeah. And but but this is this is going to be the big issue. Right. Yeah. And I 
and, and maybe it's just, you know, they always say hope is not a strategy. Maybe it's just my personal hope, right, that, that we move to where, as you're saying, markets reflect risk yes. and reward in a way that they haven't over the, the last eight years. Yeah. But this is going to be the big struggle, right? Yeah. Or the, Tensions, tensions too small a word. I agree. No, it's precisely what you said. It was the point you made earlier about social programs, and they're easy to give, but they're hard. They're hard uh, to take away, like the New Deal. Right? We still have remnants of that today, and all the social programs we have. And the question is, to what extent should monetary policy act as a as a social net? Which, to to me, frankly, it has, and and that's not really what it's supposed to function as. And and it's interesting because you know sometimes, as you know, your your pieces get picked up by people. Yeah. And, and some people read my failure to inflate piece, uh, some political types, I, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. guess I would say, and um, took interest in it. But I think the ability to get politicians to really focus on something like this, which I think is actually probably the the biggest issue that we need to deal with globally going forward is what's the role of central banks in 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 global growth? because it can chill global growth in odd ways, right? Very difficult to get people to focus on this. It, it feels esoteric to a politician. Sure, You sure. can't write a book on it that gets people excited. It's not an issue that's going to get you elected uh, until something really bad happens, which I hope it doesn't. Right. But but it's very difficult to get people to change unless there's something. Well, not only is it is an issue that, palpable. that, that can't get you, that is difficult to, to help you get elected, but it's also an issue that, can be construed and generate talking points to help you not get elected. That's exactly right. You're right. Right. Absolutely. And, and and that's why this is what I mean about being such a stable political equilibrium to keep fixing the price of capital. Yes. Well, you know, the central bank used to be a big issue. The second bank in the United States back in the, 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 the I think it was 1936 when Jackson ran. That was actually a big issue. That was the big issue. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he, he lost and then won an election yep. based on that, as I recall from history. Uh, so so the question is, does that ever resurface as something that people will care about again? And I think it will if it starts to matter to their lives and the narrative, right? You've taught me a lot about narratives. The narrative needs to change that people people care about it again. It's part of a narrative they care about. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, Peter, that seems like a, a good place to... to uh, wrap it up for this time, but you're right. We've uh, we've hit a few that we need to have some some additional podcasts on. Thank you so much for coming. That was Peter Cicchini at Cantor Fitzgerald. So uh, thank you very, very much, much, Ben. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, Peter. Ben. Until next time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening. This commentary is being provided to you by individual personnel of Salient Partners LP and affiliates and is provided as general information only and should not be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the author and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. It is not investment research or research recommendation as it does not constitute substantive research or analysis.
Any action that you take as a result of information contained in this podcast is ultimately your responsibility. Salient will not accept liability for any loss or damage, including without limitation to any loss of profit, which may arise directly or indirectly from use of or reliance on such information. Consult your investment advisor before making any investment decisions. It must be noted that no one can accurately predict the future of the market with certainty or guarantee future investment performance. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Salient is not responsible for any third-party content that may be accessed through this website. The distribution or photocopying of salient information contained on or downloaded from this site is strictly prohibited without the express written consent of salient. Statements in this podcast are forward-looking statements. The forward-looking statements and other views expressed herein are as of the date of this publication. Actual future results or occurrences may differ significantly from those anticipated in any forward-looking statements, and there is no guarantee that any predictions will come to pass. The views expressed herein are subject to change at any time due to numerous market and other factors. Salient disclaims any obligation to update publicly or revise any forward-looking statements or views expressed herein. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum or other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Salient commentary has been prepared without regard to the individual financial circumstances and objectives of persons who receive it. Salient recommends that investors independently evaluate particular investments and strategies and encourage investors to seek the advice of a financial advisor. The appropriateness of a particular investment or strategy will depend on an investor's individual circumstances and objectives.